Hey there, Daniel from Bandits Keep, listening to your Funnel of Death episode. I'm curious, because you mentioned about moving the tokens around. Now, I mean, I, I have not done a funnel on a virtual tabletop, so I don't know. But um, when I run funnels, even in person, which is how I've always done them, I typically have each player choose a character that is kind of like their front man uh, and have them kind of run that character and then have the, all the rest of the kind of the, the mob, if it would be, uh, kind of in the back. <laughs> uh, that keeps things much more organized. I don't know if you were doing that or if you were having them each run all four or five of their PCs. Um, if you were, that seems like it would be <laughs> a heck of a lot of work. So uh, typically in any one scenario, one circumstance, I should say, they could pick any one of their funnel characters to step forward to help, but just that one. So if there's a trap, they choose one character to come up and look at it, not all five. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's kind of what we devolved to very quickly was you had one token and it was assumed that was your lead character and your other characters were sort of hanging a few feet away from that person and could step up and take the lead uh, in a given situation. That's so that's kind of what we did. We we didn't instead of having a bunch of tokens running around on the board, the the, the token was your character and your primary character. And then if for some reason you wanted to leave somebody behind to guard the door, we, we could drop a secondary token. That wasn't so hard to manage. But then as soon as you, you know, that person was done doing whatever, whatever they're doing, looking out, watching a door, um, keeping their hand on a, on a panel or something like that, then they could uh, just rejoin the mob, so to speak, the kind of the kind of cloud of, of it's kind of kind of electron cloud of secondary characters surrounding your primary character on the map. Uh, but so that's what we wound up doing. But uh, yeah, thanks, Daniel. Hey there, Daniel from Bandits Keep calling about the Would You Like Yourself as a Player? Uh, well, I talked about it on my podcast, but um, I thought what you added to the end was kind of interesting. And you were like, if you're a player, think about would you like yourself? And I don't know. I mean, I think that some DMs would not like me as a player. That doesn't mean I'm a bad player, or maybe it does, um, because certain players are certain, you know, act certain ways. And that is. For instance, I like the, the way that that I play as a player, and I want my players to play like that, but there's certainly GMs that would get quite aggravated by the way that I play, since I very rarely do something that's in the rules. I always keep the DM on their toes, so if you're a very by-the-book DM that likes to follow the rules, you would probably be pretty stressed out, because I'd constantly be asking to do things that just aren't in the rules, because that's just how I play when I'm a player. Hey BJ, this is Tim Shorts from Gothridge Manor. I've been listening to your podcast. First time I'm called in and I was listening to your interesting question podcast about if you'd like to have yourself as a GM or as a player. And uh, I think so for me. The one thing I wanted to dis disagree with you on is GMs make good players. I've just found in my in my play recently, not, well, I guess a couple years ago, I had a whole group of GMs that were becoming players. And I found that they had a very hard time paying attention if you weren't focused on them because they're so used to being the center of attention. So it was very uh, interesting to see how easily they would get distracted or not participate if they were not, you know, in the center of attention. But, uh, Great podcast. Yeah, I, I think I would enjoy having a player like Daniel um, who tries creative things and, and uh, doesn't let the rules or what's what's written on their character sheet 
hem them in into what may or may not be possible. You know, as long as you're asking the DM questions and being clear in your communication, I think that makes for a lot more rich role play experience when you have players do that. But I also know that would, would might be my frustrate some GMs who are more by the book, or particularly maybe newer GMs who are still trying to sort it out. And uh, you're asking them to sort of make all kinds of rulings and, and throwing curveballs at them when they're still learning how to manage the flow of of a combat encounter or or adjudicate how you you know, search a room or something like that. Um, so yeah, more experienced DMs, maybe take it easy on newbies when you're sitting in their game, try to be a good player. But, but I think in general, I, I enjoy that kind of a style that Daniel was talking about. Uh, as long as the player gives me a minute to think about what they're doing and make a ruling and, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a conversation back and forth. Um, and, and Tim brings up a really interesting point. You know, I've I've certainly got people in my play group that are also GMs, and then and I in turn play in their games. But I don't think we just have a whole big group where we're all GMs. That that would be maybe a little bit different, and and probably a little bit intimidating to be honest, uh, because now it's like a you know you're being judged by a jury of your peers. <laughs> they aren't just players who are there for along for the ride. There are other GMs who may, you may be always thinking, oh, that's not how I would have done it, or I could have done it better than that, or well, you, you misread the rule. Um, so hopefully we give our colleagues a break in terms of maybe the rules lawyering. Uh, but you bring up a good point about being used to being the center of attention because everything that happens in a game, uh, players have to take their turns, but that turn is always involved with some kind of engagement with the, the, the game master. So, yeah, that would be kind of hard to run a, a table for a bunch of people who are all used to being in the limelight or, or at least being in the middle of what's going on uh, and that can't put it on pause uh, without getting distracted with something else. You know, that, that's sort of the, the ultimate table discipline I think you want out of your players is that when it's not their turn, they're still m- paying attention so they are ready when it's their turn. Um, but to have a, you know, have a whole group of people when it's not their turn, they just sort of you know, get on Facebook or, or whatever they're doing. And I know that's become especially difficult in the last couple of years as a lot of us have moved more to exclusively to, to virtual gaming. Um, where they're not at the table and you can see them getting distracted. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're at home sometimes, you know, miles away, half, half a country away, half a continent away even. Um, and who knows what they're doing, you know, particularly if they don't have their camera on. So I think that's a, that's a good point, uh, that, that Tim brings up. So that was, um, <clears throat> yeah, Daniel Norton of Bandits Keep podcast and Tim Schwartz of Gothridge Manor podcast. Check out their podcasts. They got some really cool episodes, cool stuff going on. Uh, Tim also has a lot of really good stuff available on Drive Through RPG uh, resources. He has a, a zine called The Manor and some other you know, little adventures and scenarios he's published. All, all great stuff. So, so give that a check out on Drive Through RPG. And uh, thank you both for your calls and your comments. And just kind of an afterthought on on, on Tim's comments there. I, th- I think that maybe maybe without meaning to Tim maybe has put all of us who are GMs on notice to to think about when we aren't in the GM seat and are, are just playing a game. Not only to to cut our 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 own GMs that we're playing with us some slack on on how they're running the game, let them kind of follow their style, but also remember that. We're not there to be the the center of attention when we're not <laughs> we're not being a GM and to, we have to kind of give that up and be aware when we might be giving into the temptation to to to, to be impatient and, and throw ourselves back in the middle or alternatively get distracted and check out when 
Uh, it's not our turn. So there you go. Okay, on to uh, the main topic for this episode. Um, I recently got uh, a book, a role-playing game book. It's called Eldritch Tales by Joseph D. Salvador. Uh, the full title is Eldritch Tales, Lovecraftian White Box Role-Playing. And this is uh, built to be compatible with swords and wizardry, which it means itself is derived from original, you know, the 1974 original D&D game. Um and it's a really cool, it's not new, I think it was published in 2018, so it's not new, but it's kind of new to me. I, I was poking around on, on Drive-Thru RPG and, and found it and got the PDF, and within five minutes of enjoying the PDF, I, I went back to Drive-Thru RPG and ordered a, a hardback print-on-demand version of it to, to keep on the shelf. Um, <clears throat> so this is, a, it, it's very, you know, the, the core rule is essentially Swords and Wizardry or, or original D&D. But it's been rewritten to be set in 1920s uh, Earth, uh, in the, of course, in, in a world where Lovecraftian things are actual part of the setting. Uh, and so it has a little bit of, of guidance on how to set the tone of, of a Lovecraftian uh, campaign or a Lovecraftian scenario. Um, but like white box D&D, it is just, you know, you have strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, charisma, and constitution, 3D6 to roll your scores. Um, the classes are a little different. Uh, instead of the fighter, magic user, cleric, and thief, uh, you have the antiquarian, the combatant, the opportunist, and the socialite. Uh, the combatant is roughly equivalent to a fighter, the opportunist is roughly equivalent to a thief. And the interesting thing, the antiquarian and the socialite, um, in terms of their experience, you know, the XP needed to, to, to level up and their hit dice are, are kind of like a cleric. Um, but the antiquarian is intelligence-based uh, and the, uh, the socialite is charisma-based. So the socialite is, again, someone who's more the face of the party. They might be a politician or a, a businessman or a socialite of some kind. The antiquarian is more of a scholar. Um, it could be a librarian, a college professor, a teacher, um, an accountant, something like that. Um, and so, uh, but the mechanics are pretty much classic D&D mechanics. It does have an interesting way of handling what you would normally use an ability check for when you're not really in combat or uh, something like that. And that is, you roll a d6, which is pretty typical of, of, of old school D&D. Um, and the interesting thing, you're trying to roll a 6 for success instead of a 1 for success. Uh, so the scale is just reversed. If you've got an average score, which is 7 to 14, then you succeed on a five or six. If you got a below average score, it's just on a six. So a one in six chance for below average, a two in six chance for average, and then a three in six chance or a 50-50 chance uh, for above average if you roll a four, five, or six. So they've reversed the scale on that typical D6 roll and then found a way to let you factor in uh, you know, the, the effects of, of high and low attributes 
when you roll that that um, d6. They've also slipped in a little bit of. I, I would be really surprised to find that this isn't an actual <laughs> inspired by fifth edition D and D, and that there's a, a way that the uh, the DM can assign a, a difficulty in terms of a penalty when someone rolls one of these uh, attribute checks with a d6. Uh, so you've got a normal, hard, extremely hard, nigh impossible uh, penalties you can assess of 0, minus 1, minus 2, or minus 3. Um, and they've got a set of skills. Each class has a couple of innate skills. And there's an option to give your person an occupation, which functions a lot like a 5e background. That might give you a couple of other skills. And any time you make an attribute check where one of those skills is relevant... You roll two six-sided dice and take the one you want, which is straight up the advantage-disadvantage mechanic, only you're doing it with D6s instead of D20s. I thought that was a nice... That's, that's not too wonky of a skill system, I think, for for an old-school style game. If you want to throw some, some skills and a little more variety in there, I don't think that makes it too complex. Um, uh, and so that's the magic. There's no magic-wielding class. Anybody can learn magic if you find ancient writings and study them enough uh, and can pass an intelligence check. Uh, but this being a Lovecraftian, love, uh, Lovecraftian role-playing game, you, you don't get it for free. You, you subject yourself to the potential of damaging your mind or being driven insane every time you try to learn a spell. So you can get a collection of spells, but you've really got to put yourself out there to, uh, to earn them. Uh, and they, 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 you risk gaining insanity. Two attributes that um, characters in this game have that you won't find in D and D is uh, one is is called uh, mythos lore. So they're the the Lovecraftian mythos is alive in the shadows and the hidden and forbidden places of the world. And when you learn things about it, your your lore goes up. And as your lore goes up, you start to gain a little bit of a bonus on saving throws whenever you're confronted with something from that Lovecraftian mythos that might drive you insane or do some kind of psychic damage. And then everyone has an insanity score. It starts at zero, and there's a section in the book on temporary insanities and permanent insanities that people can gain as a result of being exposed to eldritch horrors and magic and things like that. Um... You know, of course, it's got equipment, which is more geared to the 1920s. Um, there's a bestiary in here that includes lots of the Lovecraftian classic monsters. You're not going to get like Cthulhu or, or any of the old ones themselves. Uh, that would be futile to stat those. <laughs> but, you know, there's there's a color out of space. There's a rat things. There's Lovecraftian ghouls and ghasts. Um, some of the creatures from the Dreamland, the, the Dreamland uh, stories. So there's a there's a pretty good amount of Lovecraftian and then mundane human and, and animal things as well. Uh, Spawn of Cthulhu, wow! Uh, it's got artifacts including the ne- Necronomicon and some of the other ancient books of lore that show up in Lovecraft's stories, and those are the places from which you can learn certain spells and increase your mythos knowledge without having to directly confront um, a monster or a creature, but Reading the books, you run a risk of, of damaging your mind or going insane. Um, and then there's a little bit of a... It's got a starter adventure or a starter scenario. 
Uh, and then it's also got some guidance on if you want to shift the time frame to other places other than 1920s, including how to put it in maybe more of a medieval or renaissance era on Earth, or even just combine it with a more typical D&D-style fantasy world um, to run a, a, a Lovecraftian style game in, I guess you could do a grimdark horror uh, fantasy, medieval fantasy that way. So it's a really cool book. It's not a long book. It's a real easy read. Um, I'd recommend everybody check it out. Uh, that's Eldritch Tales by Joseph D. Salvador, and that's available as PDF, uh, also available as print-on-demand, either as a hardcover or softcover at drive-thru RPG. And uh, yeah, I think at some point I'm going to want to play this game with some of my friends. This, this is a really cool uh, version. And, you know, Call of Cthulhu has been out there for a lot longer. It's well-received and, and a great game. But if you want something a little more uh, in the vein of D&D, maybe it's the, the the rule set you're more familiar with, or you just want to try something different because, you know, Cthulhu is a skills-based system, and this is, as is D&D, it's more of a classic D&D. It's a, it's a class and level-based system, so um, it might also just be useful. I, I think even if you're not going to run... Eldridge Tales itself, it might be a good place to mine information for ideas just to inject a little bit of Lovecraftian horror into an old-school-style D&D game with Swords and Wizardry or old-school Essentials or any Labyrinth Lord or something like that. Uh, anyway, it gets my seal of approval, um, and I just randomly found this. No one asked me to review it. <laughs> none, of my, none of my 12 listeners contacted me and offered me anything to review this. I'm, I'm just not that... In true Lovecraftian uh, fashion, I, I recognize that I am nowhere near important enough in the universe for anyone to want me to review their product. Some other resources that I think are cool if, if you want to get more into to Lovecraft. Um, Finn, there's a guy named Finn J.D. John who's a – I think he teaches at Oregon State University, but he's also – uh, lifelong Oregonian, and he he writes about the the history, particularly a lot of the very colorful and interesting history of Oregon. Um, but he also has his own kind of self publishing company where he looks at some the classic pulp and and, and literature. He's got a compilation of all of um, it's not all Conan the Barbarian, but it's all of the stuff written directly by Robert E. Howard himself, and then he's got a two part compilation of Lovecraft's writing. It's not all of Lovecraft's writing. It's everything Lovecraft wrote in terms of his fiction uh, that he published under his own name instead of ones he sort of ghost wrote or co-wrote with other authors. So it's all his own, just his stuff that he published under his own name. And of course, it's so big that it takes two volumes. Um, I've been getting them through audiobooks on Audible, but I think they're also available in print. The really cool thing is that that Finn J.D. John, in addition to um, com- having compiled the, the things, they're all presented in the order, chronological order in which they were published, uh, both in the, the, the Conan and in the Lovecraft. Um, but he'll, he'll provide little essays in between and, 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 and some literary analysis of the different phases of the author's career and the, the trends that were changing and, and, and developing as they developed and grew as authors. And, and will also include biographical information for what was going on at that phase in their life and how that might have in, impacted their writing um, in terms of both the, their career trajectories and their personal lives. And, you know, uh, Lovecraft and Howard both had fairly uh, tragic <laughs> lives in a lot of ways. 
So, uh, so check that out. I think he's also, he's got now also one out that's the, the John Carter trilogy, uh, which I'm going to put that on my list. And I believe I saw more recently, he's got one that's got all of Agatha Christie's, it's not all of her stuff, but it's all her stuff, all, all of her novels featuring, um, uh, Perot. So, so the murder on the Orient Express and, and all the ones with Hercule Perot, Poirot, Poirot, Anyway, that character's name is a mouthful. Anyway, uh, so check that out. That's that's a pretty good stuff. Also with Lovecraft, if you haven't, um, I think Lovecraft Country, more recent novel, is very good. HBO turned it into a series. The, the, the TV series deviates quite a bit from the book. Uh, I, I don't think that either one is better or worse. Um, I think... And if you've watched the TV series, you can read the book and still be surprised at the differences and enjoy them. And if you've read the book and not watched the TV series, go ahead and um, uh, check out the TV series on HBO because same thing. It'll deviate in ways that are not bad. They're just different, but it keeps it kind of fresh if you've already read the book. Um, And it's a good analysis of the importance of Lovecraft, I think, to science fiction, horror, fantasy. Um, And it kind of just straight up addresses some of the, the racism that, that is inherent in um, some of Lovecraft's work uh, in a way that, that, that looks at it, you know, is it okay to appreciate his work despite the fact that he may have had some views or did have some views that, that most people today find uh, repugnant or uh, wrong, uh, particularly because it's told primarily, the, the story is primarily about a, an African-American family in Chicago in the fifties. So, so it's, you know, the civil rights movement is really heating up in the area in which those characters live. It's not really an adaptation of Lovecraft's work. It's about this family discovering that there's this Lovecraftian world that Lovecraft was writing about that really exists and having to confront, uh, elements of that. Um, and of course, I, I'm from Oklahoma. I'm from Northeast Oklahoma, and there is a, it does deal quite a bit with the history of the Tulsa race massacre that occurred. Um, that that had a, probably has much larger impact on the history of the 20th century and, and and even into today than most people realize. And most of us don't realize how big of an impact it had because it's it's just now being talked about openly and treated as a legitimate. Uh, subject for for history um but the 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 i know the episode of lovecraft country where they finally confront it they kind of hint about it but they finally deal with it is extremely painful for me no i think i cried through half the episode i'm not gonna lie just because they were they didn't pull any punches on showing just exactly what happened and how horrible it was so there's a part of hidden um u.s history that if you're not familiar with it you might check it out um so now I've gone off on a tangent about something else. Uh, but again, uh, Finn J.D. John's uh, compilations, great, whether you read them in print or audiobook. Um, and the book Love Craft Country and the adaptation TV show, good, good kind of explorations of Lovecraftian horror and some of the, the cultural and historical uh, things that are interwoven into that fiction. And I guess in terms of final thoughts on on Lovecraft, I mean, far more qualified, well-read scholar and scholarly people than me have explored Lovecraft, and there are plenty of resources. You can find tons of 
essays, blog posts, you know, YouTube videos, podcasts about Lovecraft. So, uh, you know, it's not hard to find them. So I'd encourage people to check out whatever you can find. But Lovecraft is cited, um, but Gygax cited Lovecraft as an influence, along with a lot of the other class, classic pulp writers like Robert E. Howard and um, Clark Ashton Smith and uh, those guys who wrote for Weird Tales magazine. Um, but one thing that is really interesting, if you play, it's, it's, it's clear in the Eldritch Tales RPG that I, I discussed earlier, it's also very clear in Call of Cthulhu, the game, that you're playing normal people who stumble into extraordinary circumstances. You know, the characters in Lovecraft stories are not aware of this eldritch horror that exists on the fringes of the world, the true history of the world that has these um, these other, you know, things that, that, that most people just don't want to think about that are disturbing or frightening or fantastic And that's what happens in a, in a Lovecraft tale is, is you've got some person who's just normally doing their job. The surveyor's gone, been called out to uh, to survey land where they're about to, you know, the, the WPA is about to put in a dam and build a reservoir. Or some guy's just, uh, you know, answering a, a letter, you know, the friend is asking to come help him with, with some project. And they show up and then you find out, you get this doorway into this different world. Um. And so you're talking about just kind of everyday people with everyday jobs in the you know the early part of the 20th century that that are the the characters in Lovecraft's tale, and of course they encounter something unfathomable or disturbing or frightening that just changes their entire perspective on the world, and usually wind up being, if not driven insane, they just go back to their life and just don't ever want to talk about it again, and they're just kind of hoping that they die before you know all hell breaks loose. That's the essence of, of Lovecraft. Um, but I think what happens in old school D and D gamings is that's you're you're the fantasy medieval equivalent of that. So in current, and it's it's progressed. It's not just a fifth edition thing. It was it was it's, it's been building for a while. Even I think even in first edition, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, um, starting first level characters are getting progressively more and more. They're supposed to be a cut above the commoner, even if they don't have a lot of power and resources at their disposal when you first start. There's already they've already been marked. There's something special about them. They got a little bit better ability scores. They got a few more hit points. They got a few more skills. Um, and so now we think of a D and D character who is a fighter. Is he's not just some guy who was a soldier or a town you know, city watch guard or something like that. A fighter is a fighter. He was the elite of the elite, um, and he's already tougher than. The, the, the NPC town guards that you're going to run across. Um, I don't think that was the case in original Dungeons and Dragons. When you go back to the original D and D or basic, you know, your fighter probably was a town guard or a soldier or, or had some other means by which to learn how to use a broader range of armor and weapons and other people, but they are not inherently a better warrior than the other town guards or, uh, mercenaries or, or soldiers that you're going to come across. Uh, they're more comparable. You know, first-level fighter in, in, in the older school D&D uh, may only have a strength of nine and three hit points, uh, so they're not infinitely tougher than the other people they're going to run across with armor and weapons early on. And if they can survive a few adventures and level up, then they get toughened up 
and, and more durable and more more impressive. And that's true across the board of all all the classes in um, old school D and D. So I think it does share that at least that with with Lovecraftian stories. At least initially, is you are just kind of a, a regular person who uh, finds yourself for one reason or the other in the midst of, 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 of a life of adventure. And if you survive and toughen up, then it becomes more of an adventure, a, a more conventional fantasy adventure story. But but initially you are staring at things that should horrify and send you running home screaming. Uh, and if you just hold it together long enough or clever enough to survive, then you get to move into a different world of being a hero. But uh, just like Lovecraft's characters and, and his stories, I think first-level characters in old school D and D are very much just sort of scrubs, <laughs> and maybe they'll get lucky, or maybe if they're smart enough to to think their way out of a, of a few dangerous situations, then they get to be a little more heroic and, and admirable. Um. Okay, that's about it. I wanna I wanna thank Daniel Norton from Bandits Keep, and Tim Schwartz from Gothridge Manor for their calls. Uh, again, check out their work. Um, Again, Dan, they both have podcasts. Daniel also has YouTube videos, and Tim has a ton of stuff available on Drive Through RPG. Um, I want to thank again my friend Dave Bone for the artwork that, that goes with the uh, thing. Check him out at ironseer.com. And again, thank uh, my friend and player Bobby Walker, who is slowly building our fantasy grounds rule set for our old school games. Uh, Bobby is also a financial coach. Check him out at um, ramseycoach.com slash cash guide. Uh, he's got some good services available there. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to the Arcane Alienist podcast. I'll be back again in the near future with another one. Take care.